Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our warmest thanks, as always, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. What a joy. What a joy this week as well as we gathered at a, a few local nursing homes to sing as a church. Such a wonderful occasion of fellowship at our annual caroling and Christmas party. I really pray that you were blessed by that sweet time of church body life. As we kick off our season of festivity, of thanksgiving and remembrance. And as we consider God's sovereign timing in our journey through Mark, well, for many it's a challenging task to be walking through the, the sobering road of Passion Week during such a season of festivity, even during the season of Advent. It is in just such a state of mind that we are to be reminded of Paul's exhortation to his young protege, Timothy. In Paul's second letter to this budding preacher, he charges Timothy with a famous charge that we're all familiar with, and certainly one that is branded upon the mind of every minister of the word. Here Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove and rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he gives him the reason why. Here's where you come in, church. What's the reason Timothy must do this? Next verse, 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now we read over that too quickly at our peril. Herein lies a massive truth that is going to wonderfully equip you for your years ahead at Harrison Hills. Pay close attention to Paul's words. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What does it mean to endure something? In life, do we need to endure something that we like or dislike? Do we endure pleasure or do we endure pain? When you're on vacation at the beach, are you enduring at that moment? No. So what is Paul telling us? To sit under the properly preached word, to sit under sound doctrine, requires endurance. Why? Is it because it's so pleasurable and makes us feel good? The opposite is true. It's because it's hard. It's hard. And it hurts sometimes. It can stink and make us uncomfortable. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. To sit underneath the whole counsel of God is going to require you to endure. Meaning that the teaching and preaching of sound doctrine brings pain. And we don't need to endure that which makes us comfortable and lazy, do we? That's quite natural. We endure that which is hard. Begging the question, do you really want that? Do you want a message from your pulpit that requires endurance to not only hear, but to appropriate and to act upon? 
The sad truth is that most do not. Most today will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Tickle my ears. Tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good about myself. Tell me how prosperous I'm going to be. Tell me how special I am. Is that what Paul commanded Timothy to do? Is that the kind of teaching and preaching that requires endurance? No. Sound doctrine can sting, beloved. It can hurt. It can bring discomfort and even pain. That's why Paul tells us that what we need to hear is going to take endurance. And most will not want it. Now that's not popular. That will not pack the seats. Fallen human nature is like a flowing stream. And a stream meanders and it turns. Why? Because it's following the path of least resistance. Most live their life like a stream. We would be shocked the amount of time and effort that we spend in our personal lives to avoid pain. To hit the easy button. To go around the hard yard. We're hardwired for it. So are we really to believe that when it comes to our inner man, when it, when it comes to our faith walk, when it comes to our spiritual disciplines, that we so easily overcome that fallen human trait? But we don't. Paul says, do exactly the same thing. You will do exactly the same thing. Most will still hit the easy button. Avoid the pain. Make me feel good. Our call this morning, even as we continue our march down Passion Week, even as our legs get heavier, as we march closer to Calvary with every passing message, the call and command is to endure. One does not endure that which is easy. We endure that which is hard. That should be the default expectation when we walk into church. Get ready for our muscles to burn. Get ready to look into a mirror that I'd rather not. Get ready to be offended. Paul tells Timothy that should be the expectation of his congregation. If we grab hold of this, saints, this truth, Scripture telling us that sound doctrine brings discomfort and pain and offense, that it's something that must be endured, that it's something that does not come and sit with us naturally. When you plow through like a soldier, when you endure like a soldier, you're going to grow in Christ like you never thought possible. The juice is always worth the squeeze when you show up Sunday morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week for some was just such a week of endurance. <laughs> In a, metal in a message titled Swiss Cheese, <laughs> we took a deep dive into the background of Peter's denial. We looked at how Peter got here. How did he come to find himself here in this courtyard? How did he come to be outside in fear and denial instead of inside standing with his master as a co-conspirator, ready as he had professed so many times to die for his Savior. Well, the hard truth is that Peter did not just stumble into this predicament. He didn't happen upon this place of danger. 
we traced the slicing of the Swiss, didn't we? With every slice representing a decision or a factor or an element. And eventually stack up enough slices and the holes in that cheese line up and a failure gets through. As accident investigators into the the tangled wreckage of Peter's denial, we sought to identify what choices, what factors, what decisions, what, what heart attitudes led to such a calamitous event. And that journey took us first to the book of Job, didn't it? To the book of Job where Satan sought to attack Job, to attack his faith, to cause him to fail. And we saw that same arrangement sought against Peter. When Jesus tells Peter that Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And while that's a factor, while that's the highest warning from the most reliable source, Jesus goes on to tell Peter that he has prayed for him, that his faith might not fail. So while Satan is gunning for you specifically, seeking to destroy you specifically, is certainly a cause for pause. Jesus has prayed for Peter, just like he prays for us, intercedes for us, advocates for us. What a comfort that is. But still then, even more damaging than Satan seeking to attack Peter was Peter's prideful response to such a thing. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And then on the way to the garden, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Pride is driving Peter. Confidence in himself and his abilities. A misguided assessment of his spiritual strength. And we were forced to look at this failure, this denial of Christ coming from one who is a Christian. Peter is a believer. Peter is born again. Scripture shows this. Only weeks later, Peter would preach 3,000 into the kingdom of God at Pentecost. That's why such a tragedy gives us such pause and requires reflection and evaluation of every believer listening. We must heed Paul's clarion call to the Corinthians. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That overconfidence in ourselves, in our abilities, in light of our fallen condition, that's a path to pain. And Peter had forgotten the power of his old man. Being reminded that while those who have been born again and are given a new heart with a new mind, with new affections and new desires, having been born of the water and the spirit, that newness of life is trapped in fallen flesh. While we are redeemed, there is redemption yet to come. While our soul has been ransomed from the grave for eternity, our flesh makes itself known daily. Being told in Scripture that we must crucify that very flesh daily. 
It is one of the greatest laments of the Christian life. That our born-again spirit man must live in such continual, close proximity to our fallen flesh. Tainting even the most purest motives and actions. Because we long to be free of it. We long to be free of sin. We long to put off the flesh. We long for our eternal and heavenly home where that, that battle ceases. And that day is coming, but Peter has to be on a wartime footing, as it were. To put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6. Because even if the enemy is not gunning for you today, our flesh certainly is. Don't give it an inch. To recall the famous phrase from Puritan John Owen, be killing sin, lest it be killing you. So not only was Satan demanding to sift Peter, and Peter responded in pride, but our investigation shows that Peter was commanded to pray in the garden, wasn't he? Instead, he slept. He was out ahead of his commander-in-chief in the garden, where he cut off Malchus's ear. Then going from being out ahead to what? Now following behind. Following at a distance. And all these factors, as we covered last week, have led us to the scene of the accident. Peter was toast before he ever entered that courtyard. His courage hung by a thread, with nothing but a simple question by a servant girl being enough to bring down this giant in faith. Well, today we'll be giving a detailed exposition of that text surrounding Peter's denial. This is a scene that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And having established how we got here last week, looking at the many steps and the many layers that preceded Peter's denial, we're going to turn our eyes now to the event itself. And yes, we're going to see the lowest moment of Peter's life. We'll also look to his redemption. So with that, beloved, let us look to our text once again, Mark 14, 66 through 22. Mark 14, 66 through 22. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him, she began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. Again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are also a Galilean. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, every step in Passion Week, Lord, is labor. Lord, it requires endurance for us. For us. 
even in this season of celebration, festivity of Advent and reflection, Lord, we require endurance this morning. Holy Spirit, you know every need that has come to the door this morning. We ask, Lord, that the mirror of the law would be held up. We ask that the arrow would find its mark right this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, most have heard the expression, stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Speaking of a person who's, well, who's caught between two seemingly bad options, and neither of them seems desirable, both having consequences. There's no good way out. This morning, two forces are colliding on Peter, a rock and a hard place, that of faith and that of fear. And understand that both are simultaneously making a demand upon Peter, aren't they? When suffering from fear, is that a hard place? Is that an emotion that makes a demand upon a person to the point of even controlling them? If allowed, of course, fear is very powerful. Can fear make people do things that they wouldn't do otherwise? It is a powerful emotion that makes its presence known. It makes a demand upon the bearer. It may be big, it may be small, but fear can be an impassable rock. How about faith? Does faith make a demand upon the bearer? Can faith influence someone to do something that they wouldn't otherwise in their natural thinking? Of course, faith can be a hard place. And just because one, fear, can can quickly lead to sin, and the other, faith, is, is a gift from God, they both bring unmovable demands and challenges. And so it is with Peter. And it is the faith of Peter, after all had scattered in the garden, even though at a distance, his faith has brought him back to the city, back outside the gate of Caiaphas and Annas, yearning to see what is happening with his Lord. He loves his master. Faith and love have both brought Peter back. But it is fear that caused him to follow at such a distance. And it will be fear that will rule our next scene. That's the quandary of the rock and the hard place. Rarely is doing nothing an option. Fear is not stagnant or dormant. And faith never sleeps either. They must be contended with. And yet we are reminded as we look closer of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians, that these things are written down for our instruction. And we are so grateful for that. So with that, let us look to our first verse, verse 66. This will look familiar to you because this was our only verse last week. So we'll briefly set our stage with this verse and, and move forward. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came. Well, as we've covered before, this location, this is the home of Annas and Caiaphas. Yes, both, right? You'll recall that Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And in that day, what did you have? You had 
communal and family-type living. So they would have been separate houses, but they were usually connected by an open foyer in the middle. Now, this being who it was, this would have been a, a pretty palatial compound. Two levels, right? Multiple housing offshoots. You had walls around it with a gate to control the entrance. And, of course, the infamous courtyard in the middle of it all. That is the scene. So when we see Jesus being brought from Annas and then to Caiaphas, don't think that it was like across town or anything. This would have been a simple walk through the courtyard. And yet as we begin to look closer to our scene with Peter, and considering the circumstance, well, the first question that presents itself is, how did Peter get in to this compound? Remember, this compound would have been walled and gated. Two generations of high priests lived here. You'd better believe it was walled and gated. This was not open to the public. So how? You don't get past the gate without being known, without having an inn, or a reason to be there. Well, Mark doesn't tell us how. But if we rotate the gospel diamond to John, we get a clue. There's no need to turn there. I'll read it for you. But we see in the 18th chapter of John, beginning at verse 15, tells us this. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. Listen to this. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Okay, there's our how. Now I must confess, I went down a bit of a wormhole this week, studying different theories about who this other disciple was. And some explanations were quite elaborate, making some, some tenuous connections here and there, trying to explain. The most common, though, the most common theory was that this was the Apostle John. Well, that's plausible. We don't know. And in the Holy Spirit's infinite wisdom of concealment, we're not told. So that's that. Well, introduced as well, right back into our text in verse 66, is the infamous servant girl. Now, we also know her role that night by John's gospel as well. It reads this, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? So there we are. The one who would bring the first accusation was none other than the servant girl who's serving as the gate guard. Meaning that this servant girl is who the other disciple went in and spoke with to get Peter in. So that means that she's already got her eye on Peter from the word go. Now who knows what the other disciples said to get Peter in, but there would be no doubt that Peter was not the, the usual fare. He was not the norm. He was certainly out of place, wasn't he? Well, back to our scene as the back to our text as the scene progresses here in verse 67. Verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Well, this is April in Israel. Three o'clock in the morning, 
very close to max cooling for the night. So that means that this is likely in the low to mid-40s. That's chilly. In fact, John 18.18 says it was cold. So a fire would be very normal, and this is kind of where everyone in the courtroom would be huddled around, right? You've got the household servants and the temple guards. In fact, we'll see later that one very notable servant was around the fire that night, related to Malchus, whose ear Peter had just cut off, was also present. So we see in our text that at first our servant girl sees Peter. See that? Then she what? Then she looks at Peter. As the flickering fire illuminates Peter's face, she goes from merely seeing a man to looking at the man. In fact, Luke's account says that she was staring at him. I know this guy. Our entire household has been in a tizzy this last week with this Jesus fellow, tearing the temple apart, calling my master, the high priest, all sorts of foul things. And you, you also go with the Nazarene, Jesus. So here comes accusation number one, and it's very telling, isn't it? She not only knows Jesus, but she knows where he's from. What does that tell us? Two things, really. One, that he was very well-known and talked about within the household and servant staff of the high priest. There's three million people in Jerusalem for Passover. And you know this guy and where he's from? (laughs) Not likely. Secondly, it tells us her opinion of Jesus. This is how we know this girl is hostile. To call someone a Nazarene was a slam, especially in fancy-pants Jerusalem. Now, you'll recall from teachings past that Nazareth was a backwater hillbilly town, right? Remember Nathaniel lamenting in John 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They're ignorant. They're unlearned up there. A bunch of Neanderthals up there in Nazareth. So not only is, su- is the substance of this first accusation telling, very telling, but the source was, no doubt, completely unexpected. How unlikely in this culture, in this setting with so many guards, and that means men, around the fire, that a servant girl would speak up in front of everyone. But it lays bare the sinister sneak attack that so jarred Peter. And we cannot dismiss that element. Satan sought to sift Peter, sought to attack Peter, sought to bring him down. Most attacks are a surprise. Consider for a moment, if you were told, Jim, Mary, tomorrow at noon, you're going to face the biggest attack the biggest temptation to fear that you've ever experienced, okay? Here's where it's coming from. Here's where it's going to happen. Boy, you'd be ready, wouldn't you? And what's more, you probably would not succumb to that temptation because you were ready. Mentally, physically, spiritually, you were prepared. Forewarned is forearmed. It's noon. Yep. (laughs) There's the temptation. Right on schedule. Slay it like a conqueror. Look at you go. But it rarely happens that way. It was a sneak attack. 
it was a surprise attack. Peter never saw this little lady coming. No doubt. And was his spirit man built up? Was he prepared? Well, we demonstrated a myriad of ways that Peter was not. He was a sitting duck. He hung by a thread. Scripture shows Peter's battle was lost before he ever walked into that courtroom. And that's usually how it is with sin or succumbing to temptation. Victory was gained or lost, not in the heat of the moment of temptation, but in the layers beforehand. The foundations laid during the time of rest, layers of choices, layers of hard attitudes. So not only are we confronted with this aspect of temptation, that it's usually a sneak attack from perhaps an unlikely source, but Peter's denial also highlights for us one of the most challenging parts of the Christian life in the realm of temptation and obedience. Peter is someone who would have been one for the big gestures, wouldn't he? The grand stands, the big offerings, the heroic sacrifice, though all may abandon you, Lord, I am your champion. I would venture to say that most believers who are prepared and forewarned would be to the task of a big gesture as well. If a gunman were to storm our doors and chain us in and say, in 30 minutes I'm coming in, renounce Christ or your life is forfeit. You have 30 minutes to think it over. Most, if not all, would probably make that grand stand for their Lord. Most Christians would lay down their life. Most will make the big gesture. But how about the small ones? How about the everyday acts of obedience? I'll give my life for my Savior, but I'm ashamed of him at work. I'll be a martyr for the Lord, but I won't give generously to his work. Had Peter been arrested back there in Gethsemane with Jesus... Had Peter been marched side by side with Jesus into Jerusalem, right, brothers in chains, standing tall with the Messiah in front of the chief priests, how many of you think that Peter would have been bold as a lion? I bet he would have. If Peter was with the Lord, not on ahead of him, and not following him at a distance, but with him, with Jesus, telling Peter, take courage, I am with you, side by side, me and you, Peter would have been a lion. He would have hung next to his Savior on Calvary. I have no doubt. So it's first, I'll die for you, my Lord. Hey, you were also with Jesus the Nazarene. No, I wasn't. Do we see how that happened? Big gesture, we're all there. Daily obedience in the small facets of life. Not being ashamed of our Lord around the campfire. Do we crumble? So if that be the case, dear saints, where is the battle actually won or lost? Where is, where's the real attack? Where's the real battlefield? Most in here will never have to make a grand gesture for Christ. We are simply called to be faithful in the everyday walk of life. So that is exactly where you're going to be tried. 
so Peter is. So we are. Remember, beloved, this is written and recorded for our instruction. So here comes Peter's first denial, verse 68. Verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the entryway. Well, being Peter's first denial, this is, well, it's really his most subdued one. Matthew's account says that he really replied to everyone standing there. It's more almost casual conversation, meaning that this girl said it loud enough for all the people around the fire to hear. I don't know what you're talking about. Shucks, I, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Nazareth? Where's Nazareth? Jesus? Who's Jesus? All the while, blood is rushing to Peter's ears and his face. Fear has started to well up in Peter. And one has to wonder where this other anonymous disciple was at this point. One would have to think he was right there. Did John witness this? Perhaps. So having been called out and tripped up by this most unlikely source, Peter's looking to escape, but not fully. But not fully, but at least out of the spotlight. Get me out of the hot seat. So our text reads, and he went out into the entryway. Now, this was basically kind of a a covered walk that was leading back out to the street. So it was away from all the, the, the majority that would be huddled around the fire. And yet Peter could have just walked out there and done what? Left. Then and there. Is he afraid? We know that he is. And that fear is making a demand upon him right now. But he doesn't leave. Because what else is still intact? His faith. His love for the master. In this dark entryway, the warmth of the fire is gone. And Peter's conscience is positively crawling with anxiety. Faith and fear stand on both sides of Peter being immovable in their demands. But look what happens. Verse 69. Verse 69. And when the servant girl saw him, she began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. So she's found Peter again. (laughs) But not only that, but but the other gospel accounts show that she's, she's brought a few others along with her this time. And at least three of them that we know of, now approach Peter out in that cold, darkened entryway. And fear ratchets higher. Because now we've gone from, you were with him, to what? You're one of them. You're one of them. The accusation is stronger, meaning the fear is now stronger. And how will Peter respond? Fear and faith are ringing in his ears. Look at verse 70, verse 70. But again, he was denying it. Strike two. But beloved, what's different now? What's different from the first denial to the second? Yes, the accusation has changed, right? They've they've upped the ante. But what has Peter been doing in the dark entryway? 
He's been wrestling with his conscience. He's been processing what he's just done. Remember, Peter is a believer. Meaning that the Holy Spirit is laying on Peter with a holy conviction. The first time Peter denied Christ, he was sideswiped on a sneak attack from an unlikely source. And he reacted in the moment, being weakened for all the reasons that we explored. But now, strike two. Oh, this is a premeditated denial. Peter is not caught off guard here. He's done it, he's said it, and now here she comes again, and she's got friends. I'm going to stick with this story. Peter didn't speak in the heat of it here. The tragedy of Peter's second denial is the deliberate choice. The premeditated denial. What was his inner monologue? You think there was some rationalizing going on there? If you stood in that cold entryway? How many of us do that when our sin is gathering steam? Whatever the rationale, fear is now driving. Self-preservation is all-consuming. He loves his physical life more than his eternal life in that moment. Even as Jesus told him in John 12, whoever loves his life, Peter, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But Peter's on a path now. His decision is picking up steam. Just last month, we talked about the momentum of sin, didn't we? The inertia that it picks up. This monster takes on a life of its own, and Peter is speeding downhill fast. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are also a Galilean. Now, who said that right there? Surely you are one of them. John's account says, I saw you in the garden with him. This was the relative of Malchus. Meaning just an hour and a half to two hours ago, Peter had just cut off his relative's ear. Peter's throat is beginning to close up from fear. They could drag him outside the gate right now for some street justice. It's 3 a.m., no problem. What else gives Peter away? For you are also a Galilean. Uh-oh. Matthew's account says, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Again, not a compliment. Now, if you want extra credit at home, if you look to the Babylonian Talmud, 53b, 53b, it tells us, quote, several amusing stories about Galilean dialect that indicate only a defective pronunciation of gutturals in the 3rd and 4th century. In other words, they don't talk real good. Just like Nazareth, they were hillbillies of the north. And their accent gave them away with just a sentence. One would know exactly where Peter was from. So with Jesus being from Nazareth and Peter being from Galilee, there's certainly an air of superiority that hung over their, our scene as well, right? Besides being just hostile and 
accusatory. So could Peter have stopped right there? Could Peter have stopped the train right there? Yes. What is the promise of God in this moment? No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Peter had a way of escape. Now, likely not a physical escape. But is that what really matters? Is that even the promise? Is that what matters in eternity? Saving our skin or walking in obedience? Understand this, beloved. Grab hold of this, dear saints. The moment you obey, you have escaped. Do we get that? What is the escape that Scripture speaks of here? Is it physical? Not necessarily. Does it mean that we're going to get out of the situation that our sin made? Probably not. The instant we obey, the instant we choose faith over fear, the moment you conquer temptation, you are free. You have escaped. Especially what? Escaped what? What have you escaped? Oh, listen to the psalmist, Psalm 124. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Peter could have been free in a moment, right then and there. Do we hear Jesus in John 8, 38? So if the Son sets you free, Peter... But what does free look like through the eyes of fear? That's physical freedom. That's getting away with my skin intact. That's not having to pay the consequence for my sin. That's the freedom that our fear is seeking. But what does free look like through the eyes of faith? I might be arrested right here. My consequences right along with me. I might be hauled in and executed. I might be shunned by friends and family. It might cost me money or opportunity. But make no mistake, I am free. Obedience and faith, instead of disobedience and fear, would have set Peter free in a moment. Fear seeks to save the body, to go around a consequence. Faith seeks to save the soul, willing to walk through anything, but Christ go with me. How freeing, Christian. How freeing is that? To know that in any moment of temptation, freedom is available and instantaneous. Wow. That is not the choice Peter makes in that dark and cold entryway. Look with me to verse 71. Verse 71. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. 
Well, remember if you, with me, if you will, that while Jesus' mock show trial is going on, these events with Peter have been happening simultaneously. Okay, These three denials of Peter have happened over the course of probably two hours or so. So here then, as we're at the last and final denial of Peter, we are also simultaneously at the end of Jesus' time with Caiaphas. These two scenes are running concurrently. They're running at the same time. So by way of reminder, what's going on inside right now at the end? Inside, verse 65, they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. But is that the bitter cup that Jesus is drinking from right now? I would submit to you, no. The true bitter cup of this hour that Jesus hears and knows just happened outside. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Peter literally calls down a curse upon himself, meaning if I'm lying, let God strike me dead. I don't know this man Jesus. This final outburst, Dr. John MacArthur, he writes this quote, What began as a knee-jerk reaction to the inquiry of a servant girl had escalated into a premeditated tirade of dogmatic deceit and disloyalty punctuated with cursing and swearing that echoed throughout the courtyard. Close quote. Between a rock and a hard place. Fear appears to have won the day at this moment. Look with me to verse 72. Verse 72. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Stop there. It happened just as Jesus said it would. The number of denials, the crowing of the rooster. But beloved, why does that cause the heart of the believer to soar? Why does that encourage us beyond all that we can fathom this morning? Is it merely because that means that God is omniscient? That God knows everything and we can rest in that? Well, of course. But Peter, from the moment Jesus called Peter to abandon his nets, to come and follow me, through the times of Peter's boasting and his stubbornness. Jesus saw this moment in the courtyard as if it had already happened, and he saved him anyway. He knew every failure that was and would be in Peter's life. If God has drawn you to himself with irresistible grace, we are no different. You have yet to surprise God. He knew it all, and he saved you for it. So as this first denial, this 
this final denial, this calling down of curses and swearing is ringing out in this cold courtyard. Luke's account gives us the complete picture of that final moment. He writes immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. There are defining moments in every believer's life that forever change them, don't they? You would think it would be hard to top being on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord, like Peter. But meeting the eyes of his Savior across the courtyard, the face that once shimmered before Peter on that mountain, is now starting to turn black and blue from absorbing the punches. There's blood and spit on his face. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now one has to believe that every moment of time in ministry with Jesus came crashing in like a flood. Every tender moment of intimate teaching that they had around a fire the miles they spent walking and talking as they would, stepping out onto the waves to Jesus with outstretched hand. More moments, as John's gospel says, than all the books in all the world could contain, all captured in a moment as their eyes met. So what then? What now, Peter? Well, we asked earlier if it was John, who was the anonymous other disciple there with Peter. We, we don't know. But we do know John wrote this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. Luke says Peter cried bitterly. Now don't miss this for a moment, dear saints. <laughs> there is a sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10, tells us that according to the will of God, that produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There are two types of sorrow. A godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Judas wept, did he not? Judas regretted his actions. Judas had sorrow over the consequences of his sin. Sorrow over being caught. In that moment when Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver back on the ground, this had all the makings of a godly sorrow, didn't it? But a godly sorrow brings repentance. Worldly sorrow brings death. And Judas went out and hung himself. Worldly sorrow can even see themselves as a great sinner. Just as Judas did. They could see themselves as a great sinner. But the journey stopped there. Worldly sorrow can say with Judas, I am a great sinner. But godly sorrows goes on and says, yes, I am a great sinner, but he is a great Savior. 
Peter wept. And Peter wept bitterly. And it was glorious. Godly sorrow that would lead to repentance. Standing between fear and faith. The glance of Christ in a moment. Perfect love cast out fear. Peter would never do that. And there on the shores of Galilee, just a few days later, Peter had fished all night and caught nothing. And a man stood on the shoreline. And he called out to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find the same. You'll find some. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And John said, it's the Lord. And Peter jumped out of the boat. He swam and ran to Jesus. There on the shores of Capernaum, they had breakfast. When they had finished, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. Sorry. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three denials, three restorations. Peter was made whole. Later on in Peter's first epistle, Peter would write this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. And so it did. And so it does today. Glory to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been able to gaze by the mercy of the Holy Spirit into your text, into your word today. Lord, all things are not easy for us, but it is all profitable. Holy Spirit, we know that you will use this word in the way in which it is meant. Lord, that the seeds would go down deep. Lord, we believe for a harvest for this 30, 60, and 100 fold in the lives of these believers. Heavenly Father, if there be anyone today that does not know you in a Savior, Lord, that today would be the day. That today is the acceptable day of salvation. Lord, whether they've played church for many years, we demand truth in, in their lives. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we go further in our service, Lord, that you would continue to be with us. Lord, that you would keep us until we can meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A cause for rejoicing, beloved. As we behold the, the tangible promises that God will grow his church, that God will provide for his church, how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? And God, by his sovereignty, is raising up the next generation of preachers. And we are called to be a part of that preparation. And most of you know that Nathan has undergone some, some pretty grueling interviews to get to this point. And I could tell you how many times in those interviews I was wishing that I knew what Nathan knew at his age. What great things lie ahead of a man that has so dedicated himself to God's word and his people. Of course, to know Nathan and Kaylee is to love them and watch with great anticipation for what the Lord will do through both of you as you seek to be faithful to him. Beloved, we ask that you witness the charge this morning, the charge that Nathan would take heed to himself and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit is preparing you for ministry, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. We want you to know that we honor you this morning in being obedient to the call that God has placed on your life, to be a pastor and a minister of the word. Paul tells Timothy, let the elders who lead well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonorable gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So Nathan, as we prepare to install you in this pastoral internship, as you learn and grow, will you commit to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God's inerrant word in season and out without apology and without compromise, not shrinking to declare the whole counsel of God? Will you commit to being a personal example to this congregation, committed to a life of holiness abstaining from all practices that may jeopardize your witness and spending and being spent for the proclamation of the gospel. Feels like you're getting married. 
Nathan, will you determine to know nothing among this congregation but Jesus Christ and him crucified? Not coming to them in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power of God that he might get all the glory. Will you commit yourself to loving this congregation by praying fervently for those Christ purchased with his own blood? And finally, will you desire to love this congregation as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, imparting to them not only the gospel, but your own life? And will you in everything in your power, as you learn to shepherd the flock, protect them from false teaching and false teachers? Will you commit to be God's leader in your own home, teaching your wife the things of God according to scripture by the word, by word and deed and leading Kaylee to love Christ and his church? Beloved, it is our joy to welcome Nathan into a pastoral internship at Harrison Hills. gather around and pray for Nathan, guys. Beloved, pray with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this joy of opportunity. Lord, that your faithfulness to your church extends from age to age, that you are still the same, that your word hasn't changed, that you are raising up preachers to faithfully proclaim and herald your word. Lord, we ask that you would go before Nathan and Kaylee now. Lord, that every plan or of the enemy to trip him up would be set to the side, would be foiled. Lord, we ask that you would give him strength and endurance in preparation, Lord, for his service to this flock. All of these things we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. That is a joy. Yes. Beloved, join with us as we close in benediction. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we go from this place today, Lord, that you would cause all of these things to take root in our soul. Lord, that you would go before us in joy. Uh, Lord, that you would prepare the way, that you would prepare the way for Nathan and Kaylee. Lord, that each one of us would support them in their calling as well. All these things we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.